Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, let's quickly cover a few more ancient landmarks. Then let's sing a few more songs and come to the Lord's table. What a glorious Savior we have. As we read and meditated at the couple's retreat, He doesn't ask for our firstborn. He doesn't look for the fruit of our womb. He wants the sacrifice of our lips and our hearts. And He's worthy of both. The next landmark that I would like to cover very briefly is that we do believe that giving is part of a New Testament church. There is a movement afoot that is making its focus point on the word tithe, which is a tenth, and saying the New Testament doesn't require a tithe. And to that I will say the New Testament doesn't require a tithe. The word tithe isn't used in the New Testament. Anyone in the New Testament should be willing and ready to give more than a pitiful little tithe of the Old Testament. If under the beggarly elements of the Old Testament they were willing to give a tithe, how much more should we be willing to give under the New? There's a document on our home page about that tithing controversy. And I'll take just a couple of minutes to show you a few verses and we'll move on. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham has taken his 318 trained servants born in his own house and pursued the kings of the nations that have come from Mesopotamia, Iraq, and taken his nephew Lot and his family and all of his possessions captive. He he defeats those kings and he comes back and he meets Melchizedek on his way back who was the king of Jerusalem in its earliest days called the king of Salem here. And we read this, verse 18 of Genesis 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Abraham gave a tithe of all to Melchizedek, and this was 400 years before the law of Moses. The argument that these people try to make is that the tithe was a particular commandment for the Jews only under the Old Covenant. The problem is we find it here in Genesis chapter 14, and it's Abraham giving tithes to Melchizedek. And if we were to go on, we could find that Jacob as well told the Lord when he made the stones a pillow for his head, if you'll be with me and bring me again to my father's house, I will give you a tenth of all. And Jacob was very wealthy when he returned to his father's house. And there again was tithing or a tenth being given before the law of Moses. There were commandments in place in the world before the law of Moses The law of Moses just systematized those commandments. If you committed murder long before the law of Moses, the commandment was given to Noah, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. That was long before Moses. Moses just systematized it as to what crimes were capital offenses under his law. Let's come now all the way over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And let's be reminded of what men do when they are possessed and led by the Spirit of God. They're great givers. We have no budget that we need to meet. There's no gymnasium we're trying to build. Your pastor isn't looking for a new car. I just want to preach the ancient landmarks. By the grace of God, if I have a few more months out of my Jeep, I'll have had it ten years. I've figured out how to trick that transmission to keep it going, and I'm thankful for it. Don't anyone feel sorry for me. I love that Jeep. I want to squeeze all I can out of it. It's It's a creative pleasure to start it up every time. I'll take 30 seconds. Just It sometimes can't get out of first gear. And that limits me to 20 miles an hour, and I don't feel good at that speed. So I have to stop it in the middle of the road, turn it off, 
and that clears the, the electrical circuit to the transmission. I start it back up, and it goes straight into second without using first at all. And it's worked that way for many months, and I'm thankful for it. It gets me everywhere I need to go. Don't anyone listening to this tape feel sorry for me. I love my Jeep. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. What a prayer meeting we have here in Acts 4. It is a short prayer. Verses 23 through 30 describe this prayer meeting and it tells us the consequences of it in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the Word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I was reminded this week by someone I had forgotten the event, although as soon as it was mentioned, I certainly took great pleasure in it, of a brother that came forth recently and threw a check at my feet. How many recall the event? Okay. That was a, a, a special moment in our church. Trying to, he was practicing Ephesians, I mean, Acts chapter 4. We immediately put that into our fund, general fund. This is what spirit-led men want to do. They're givers. As every man had need. If a need arises, we take care of it. I've preached before the order of giving. You are responsible for your family first. And you are then responsible, we as a church, are then responsible for our church ministry, the ministry, the Levite, the preacher. Then we're responsible for the poor in our church. Then we're responsible for the poor in other churches. We're responsible for helping take men on their way in the way of evangelism. Those things we can find in the New Testament. We live frugally as a church. For many years we rented in order to save money, be without debt, and do the things that we knew we ought to do, and we knew they were more important than a building. And so we continue that way to this day. We believe gospel ministers should be supported, evangelism promoted, and the poor in this or other faithful churches relieved. And we find that throughout the Bible. We believe that God has His own welfare system for widows, and it's found in Acts chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we will follow those passages of Scripture. Look at Acts chapter 11. We are not moved by all the poor of the world. It's not because we're hard-hearted or have no hearts. It's because when we read the Word of God, we don't find our Lord Jesus Christ or His apostles moved by them. Jesus and His apostles did not take side excursions down to Egypt to find orphanages to give away their money. They restricted their activities to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and they preached the gospel to them. When there were acts of God like famines, the apostles would raise money and take care of the poor of the churches. They did not go looking for the poor that were being advertised on television channels. We've been over all that before. I don't have time to repeat it and show you all the Bible evidence. Find me one place where they cared. I'm going to show you right now what happens when there's a famine, a widespread famine where many people are starving, the attitude of the apostles. Acts chapter 11, verse 27. Acts 11, 27. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. Antioch is a city in, in Syria, several hundred miles north of Jerusalem. Prophets came from Jerusalem up to Antioch, which was Paul's home church. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability determined to send relief unto every orphanage that they could discover. 
they determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. When Barnabas and Saul, Saul brought this offering several hundred miles from Antioch of Syria and brought it down to Jerusalem, they brought it and gave it to the elders again who made distribution of it as every man had need in agreement with chapter 4. But notice, even though there's several hundred miles in between them and the famine would have caused havoc everywhere, they determined by the inspiration of the prophets and the leaders of those churches to take that gift to the brethren that were in Judea. We are not hard-hearted. We're just following the Bible. Let the dead bury the dead and let the dead feed the dead. We will feed the people of God and we'll, we will take care of them if we know about them. And Lord, continue to give us opportunities to do so. I appreciate the zeal and quickness with which we responded to helping some of our brethren down in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana after the recent hurricane. We do believe in giving, and we want to keep that as a pillar of our church. We have some great examples in this church. There are some very generous givers. We have our Barnabases. We have our Philemons. And from time to time, they're mentioned by name. And from time to time, they get angry with me. But I will defend myself on the basis of having this chapter, which was written by Luke and which went to the churches of the New Testament, the name of Barnabas mentioned in public. It was known what he had done. It was told where he owned the land. It was told what he did with the land and what he did with the proceeds. When the Bible says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that is Jesus Christ using some extreme language to make a very simple point that doesn't have a thing to do with your hands. It's impossible to give without your left hand knowing what your right hand did. Because I think it's your mind that writes the checks or reaches into your wallet to pull out the money. And when you reach into your wallet or you write a check, both hands know what you did. It is an extreme statement by our Lord Jesus Christ to make the point, and if you read the context, you know the point, don't give money to be seen of men and receive praise and exaltation and honor from them. Do it in private, and your Father in private will see what you're giving in secret and reward you openly. That is to be the emphasis. And all givers should want to give privately as much as they can, but it's a pastor's prerogative to sometime pull them forward and make them public because it's encouraging to the saints. And they did right here. And this is not the only one that's named in the Bible. Philemon was a helper of very many. He had refreshed the souls of very many because he was a wealthy man and had helped. And Paul commended him for that in an epistle that all men were able to read. Enough on giving. Let me quickly close out the first half of this series of messages that dealt with some doctrinal positions that we hold. I want to close out this way with several more landmarks. We are not Reformed Baptists. We are not Reformed in any way. We're not Reformed. It is a shame. It is a contradiction of terms for the words Reformed and Baptist to be stuck together. The Baptists didn't Reform anything. The Baptists had existed outside the Roman Catholic Church for its entire duration and before it was even started. We're not Reformed Baptists. We disagree with that. We don't believe in the Reformation of John Calvin, of Martin Luther and the others. All they did is slightly reform and whitewash the Catholic Church. They kept its sacramentalism. They kept its classical education for ministers. They kept its adoration of creeds. They kept its desire to have a state church. The Lutheran Church became the state church of Germany. The Calvinistic Church became the state church of parts of Switzerland. The Presbyterians won the state church of England. The Congregationalists became the state churches of some of our states in New England. We're opposed to those kind of things, and that's what you get from Rome. Reformed Baptists holding to the creeds, hold to eternal sonship. We deny it. They have a system of government over a church that's different than what we read in the New Testament that limits the officers of a church to bishops and deacons. We're not reformed. We're thankful not to be reformed. Martin Luther is not our apostle. He's not our hero. The Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior and the Apostle Paul is our great apostle. 
and we're thankful for him. Martin Luther is not a cousin to the Apostle Paul. They weren't even close to each other. Martin Luther sicked the citizens of Germany on Baptists. He couldn't stand Baptists. John Calvin did the same. And I've told you why before, and it should be so simple to your minds. A Baptist comes along, and in simplicity, without their fancy buildings, without all their rituals, without all their sacraments, rebaptizes former Lutherans and former Presbyterians. And they say, we're not rebaptizing anyone. This is the first baptism they've ever got. And those men hated men that did that. They hated the doctrine of rebaptism. They hated anabaptism. Because to rebaptize meant the first baptism wasn't valid, wasn't really a baptism. We're not reformed. We're not landmark Baptists. Landmark Baptists believe in church succession that can be traced back church by church all the way to the apostles. We don't believe that can be done. We don't believe it's necessary. And so we don't do that. We don't believe in church succession. We don't believe that big churches start little churches. We believe that pastors ordain men, baptize men, and form churches. Paul left Titus in the island of Crete and said, you set in order the things that are wanting. He didn't say to a church that was not in Crete, but somewhere else, we need you to extend an arm onto the island of Crete and start a church over there. We don't believe in church succession of the landmarkers. We love many of the things the landmarkers stand for. They do believe that the Baptists have been outside Rome all the way from the days of the Apostles. And for their zeal in that, we we commend them. But for their need to try to link church to church to church back to John the Baptist, we don't need it because we believe it by faith. Because those Baptist churches went by all sorts of names over the last 2,000 years. We believe in ministerial succession. One minister ordains another, and that is how the truth is preserved, and churches continue to be in the earth. Paul said to Timothy, The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And there's four generations of ministers. Nowhere did he tell a church for a church to start an arm of a church and an arm of a church and for church succession. We just, we just deny it. We can't find it in the Bible. We're not primitive Baptists. Some of you came from the primitive Baptists. We commend and appreciate many things the primitive Baptists stand for. But we reject any name and any denominational system, especially one that's only 150 years old. We are not going to be enslaved by anyone that says that we are not a valid New Testament church because we don't have two English words, primitive and Baptist, in our name. That would force all of us to be rebaptized by a primitive Baptist minister. I would have to be reordained by a primitive Baptist minister, and the church would have to have its name changed to the Antipato Primitive Baptist Church of Greenville, or whatever we wanted to name it, we'd have to add those two words. We're, we're, not, we're not like that. And there's other things, and I've preached it before, and there's a lengthy outline, and it's longer than it used to be, because I've put it together and lengthened it for our brother Singh. We're not Primitive Baptists. They, they adore the name. It's an idol to them. And if you don't think it's an idol, ask any one of their ministers to walk outside the door and paint over it. It's not in the Bible, so shouldn't he be willing to paint over it? He'd be run out of town on a pole. They went into Malaysia and tried to add that PB to everything that's being done there. And it's unnecessary. It's not in the Bible. We appreciate many things that they do, and I'm thankful for men that came out of them that were pioneers in teaching me the truth of instant, immediate regeneration with the power of the Holy Spirit, but that does not mean that I'm going to submit to their name. They are so hung up about that name that a good man that many of us know that helped teach me and taught the man who ordained me when he took the P and the B and reduced them to small letters, he was run out of town on a rail. The name of the church was the Augusta Church of the Primitive Faith and Order. And because it wasn't the Augusta Primitive Baptist Church, he was considered a heretic, a heretic and an outsider to that church after they were influenced by some other ministers that he wasn't following the old paths. Now, when a path is only 150 years old, it's not old enough. It's not old enough by 1,850 years because the paths we want to follow 
are the apostolic paths and no others. We don't care what Grandpa did. We don't care what good and godly men did in the past. David and Paul ignored them all and said, the Scriptures are able to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. None of that is to say that we don't love many of the people, the ones that we know, and many of the things that they stand for. We are not fundamentalists. Fundamentalists in our city believe that there are fundamentals of the faith. And those fundamentals, as long as you agree upon them, you can agree to disagree upon everything else. We, we, we're fundamentalists as long as you define fundamentalism as everything the New Testament teaches. But they don't do it that way. There's a university in our town. I'll, I'll not mention its name. It's called the world's most unusual university. And they have a creed. And they have that creed said every day. And that creed is to be held to. And that, they, that contains for them the fundamentals of the faith. I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, that's such a lack of faith. We can't even come close to a statement like that. What Bible? I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. What Bible? The original autographs are all they mean. They've never had a Bible, seen a Bible. They've never preached a Bible that they say we're supposed to believe. And it goes through a few basic statements like that that every religious denomination in this country could sign and agree to with a, with a zealous heart except maybe an Orthodox Jew and a Jehovah's Witness. Maybe. They might have problems with a couple statements in it. It doesn't say anything. But they call it fundamentalism. And here's the point I really want to get at. Those fundamentalists at that world's most unusual university, while they're quoting that every single day, they say, we don't care about the doctrine of baptism. We don't care about the mode of baptism nor the subjects of baptism. We don't care if you do infants or if you do believers. We don't care if you practice immersion or if you practice sprinkling. It's all fine and dandy because it ain't one of the fundamentals. We disagree. If it's in the New Testament, it's fundamental enough for us to practice it, defend it, earnestly contend for it, require it, and to separate from anyone that doesn't practice it. It's the New Testament that we're going to be loyal to, no matter how detailed that may be. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul said to withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly. And in that chapter, what was at stake? The virgin birth of Jesus Christ? The Trinity? Not having the right work ethic. Second Thessalonians 3 is about lazy men. There were men that were not working at all and they were busybodies. They thought that the coming of Jesus Christ was close enough that they might as well excuse themselves from working and they went from house to house and were busybodies in other men's matters, sitting around talking about Jesus, waiting for the second coming. And Paul wrote a whole chapter about them and said, Withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly. Then he explained, I worked day and night when I was among you to give you an example of a Christian work ethic. I commanded you in the name of our Lord that any man that does not work shall not eat. The context is a work ethic. That's how I go by the Bible. If the Apostle Paul can say that a work ethic is fundamental enough to withdraw from every brother over, then that's where we're going to stand. And, you know, I don't think you kids that have said the creed before, did it have anything in there about the work ethic? No. doesn't have anything about... This is the Word of God. A whole chapter about working hard. If the Apostle Paul says that women ought to have long hair and men ought to have short hair in 1 Corinthians 11, we believe that's apostolic tradition and we consider it one of the fundamentals of the faith. You say you're being a nitpicker. Well, call us whatever you wish as long as the nits that we're picking are found in the Word of God. We're going to keep on picking them and standing by them. Whatever the Bible says, that's where we want to stand and we don't want to dilute it down to say we must agree on these five things and we'll agree to disagree on the other 105. What they're saying, you know, one of the reasons they say this is these are the ones you have to believe in order to get saved. And you know what we believe? That if you really want to be saved, you have to believe them all. Because everything in the New Testament that you don't believe and that you're not practicing to that degree, you're not saved. 
Because it's by learning the whole counsel of God, which Paul preached. He said, I, I delivered unto you the whole counsel of God, and I shun not to declare to you the whole thing. We want the whole thing because it's by knowing every word of God that we are to live. We're not Reformed Baptists, Landmark Baptists, Primitive Baptists, or Fundamentalist Baptists. We're hope, we hope to be Bible Baptists. We hope to be Baptists like John the Baptist in that we baptize the way he did, and we hope to be Baptists like Paul was, who rebaptized those that he found hadn't been baptized the right way. So we're rebaptizers, but we're followers of Paul. Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles who said, Be ye followers of me, even I am a follower of Christ. Amen. Now let's go to some more practical landmarks. Bible preaching. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Bible preaching. What is a church supposed to have in it as its main diet? Bible preaching. We don't have entertainment. We don't have special music. All of our music is special. They call it special music when somebody gets up front who is never good enough to cut it in a nightclub. They turn the lights out and put a spotlight on them so they can pretend they're at a nightclub. We don't do that. We're not looking for anyone to be special. All of our singing is special. What we, what we just sang, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. That was special. Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. I hope that was special to your soul. We don't single out musical talent and put them in the pulpit. Where does it tell us to do that in the Bible? You know what we ought to do is we ought to single out sold out hearts and put them in the pulpit to sing. Give me a sold out heart that can't carry a tune in a five gallon pail. And get up here and let us see his face or her face. If we are, I'm not suggesting a new practice for our church. But if we're going to search for anyone, shouldn't it be the one with the biggest, the biggest and loudest melody coming out of their heart? Where does it say in the Bible the Lord cares in the New Testament about what comes out of here if it doesn't start right here? Now, if it starts right here, we like to have it come out here sounding good here. And we're thankful for what we have in this church that way. But Bible preaching is our mainstay. Not entertainment, not storytelling. We come to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and the Apostle Paul, in a private letter to his ministerial understudy Timothy, invokes a severe oath on him in these words, I charge thee, therefore, because of the perilous times of the last days of chapter 3, I want you always to understand every verse in its context. There's weight in this verse. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. That is to be the main diet of a church. That is what's supposed to come out of the pulpit. Preach the Word. Be instant. That word instant does not mean I come up with instant sermons. It means to be insistent, pressing, and urgent upon all the hearers that what's being taught is important and you need to adopt it in your lives. Be instant, in season, out of season. It's not always in season to preach. You can look at faces and see that it's not in season. The circumstances might not be the best. We might be tired. It might be hot. It doesn't matter. Be insistent, in season, out of season, Always be pressing the people with the Word of God. Right. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And all that, that long-suffering there is not putting up with them wanting to be heretics for a long time. It means putting up with them not liking you for a long time. With all long-suffering and doctrine. It doesn't matter what men do to you. Just keep on preaching the truth. Paul said, I endure all things for the elect's sakes. He didn't back off because it got hard. In fact, he said over there in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 3, he told Timothy, Thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of life. You've known my persecutions and afflictions. He mentioned several places where they came to him. And he said, You've known all that. I never backed off. I kept on pressing the Word of God. And I'm telling you and I'm charging you in the name of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to do it the same way. Verse 3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine 
But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They want someone that will scratch their little lusts. They want to hear pleasant things. They want to be stroked. They want stories. They want athletes giving testimonials. They want to hear about Roger Staubach winning the Heisman Trophy, going to the Navy, and then playing for the Dallas Cowboys. And it gets them so excited. Oh, I want to be a Christian. After they hear an athlete give a testimony, it never carries any weight. It's not the way God ordained it. God wants us to preach the Word, but they will no longer endure it. They've turned their ears away from it. They've gone over and kicked the stones that mark the field, and the landmark has been removed. And we cannot change. We must stick with preaching the Word of God and pressing it upon all hearers. Verse 4, They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. And we live in the fulfillment of that prophecy. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, and let's remind ourselves about this landmark before we leave it. This is a practical landmark. What comes out of this pulpit should be preaching God's Word. And how do we preach God's Word? Do we tell stories about it? Anecdotes about it? Illustrations? Childhood stories? I don't even own McKnight's 10,000 sermon illustrations. What good would it do you or me? When I think back through all the sermons I heard as a child, and I'm not referring only to those preached by my father, because my father didn't do it. But I can remember illustrations, and so can my brother. My brother and I can go back to specific sermons, remember them from 40 years ago, and do you know the only thing we can remember? Is the illustration that was intriguing, funny. Isn't it? Pitiful. You know what you have to do when you go to seminary? or a Bible college, you have to learn where those books are found and get them for your library so that you have 10,000 sermon illustrations so that when you're building your sermon, you spend a little bit of time picking a verse or two and then you pull up some tear-jerking, emotion-moving sermon illustrations and that is sermon preparation at the highest level as taught in seminaries and Bible colleges. Did you ever hear about McKnight's 10,000 sermon illustrations or any other author? You weren't a preacher boy. Nehemiah chapter 8. Brother, you did. Nehemiah 8. Here's how we preach. Verse 8. Nehemiah 8, 8. The whole chapter is so precious it deserves a whole sermon, but we're just limited to one verse right now. So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and cause them to understand the reading. Amen. That's what we do. We read the Word of God. We read the Word of God. You know what I have in the pulpit. You can come and look at it any time. He opened the Word of God before the people. They all humbled themselves before it. And he read the book of the law of God distinctly. He read the exact words that God had given. He didn't paraphrase it. He didn't believe in paraphrases. He wouldn't have had a living Bible. He didn't want the Amplified Bible. He wanted God's words and he read them distinctly. Then he gave the sense or the interpretation of those words and he caused the people to understand what was God trying to communicate with those words. That's what we do. Minute after minute, hour after hour, sermon after sermon from this pulpit and it better stay that way. I don't care who's in the pulpit and it doesn't matter who's in the pulpit. The method better be the same. I know there's more entertaining preachers. I've heard them. And I'm not very sorry. Just a little. I'll never leave God's method by His grace. This is God's method. This was done in the Old Testament. It's done in the New Testament. Read the Word of God distinctly and give the sense. Pull verses from all over the place. If you go to Hebrews chapter 1, you're going to see Paul pulling, 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 pulling from various places in the Old Testament to build his point. He told us what his method was, didn't he? In Acts 17... It says, as his manner was, he went into the synagogues and reasoned with them three Sabbath days out of the Scriptures. Opening and alleging. He was just like an attorney in court, making his opening arguments, then alleging from the Word of God that those opening arguments were true, and then drawing conclusions and pressing them upon the people, making the Gospel manifest to their consciences. And if they wanted to believe it, then it would be a savour of life unto life. And if they didn't, it would be a savour of death unto death. It was logical reasoning through the Word of God from the Old Testament Scriptures. Opening and alleging. Just like an attorney in court presenting his case. 
That's where those words come from. They're, they're, they're terms that refer to lawyers in their profession with the Word of God. Turn to Proverbs chapter 7. Let's go to another landmark. And it has to do with what the female half of our congregation is wearing. Bible preaching has left America. It's now storytelling. It's PMA training, positive mental attitude. A landmark has fallen down. We want to restore that landmark and keep it there, and that's to preach the Word of God by reading it distinctly, giving the sense, and causing people to understand it. Now we come to female modesty. There's no one in here that is wearing what their grandmother wore. There's no one in here wearing anything even close to what their grandmother wore. Your grandmother had so many layers on it, it took her 15 minutes to undress. You say, you're not going to drop a bomb on us, are you, that we've got to go back to grandma's clothes? No, we're not going to go back to grandma's clothes necessarily. But I certainly want to impress upon the ladies of this congregation that a landmark has fallen by the wayside and it's happened in the last 100 years. And that is the clothing that covers women has fallen off in the last 100 years, the last 70 years. As late as the 1920s, what did a woman wear if she went swimming in the presence of men? What were the two color choices, first of all? Black or blue? What was the material? Wool. How high did it go? To here. How far out here did it go? To the wrist. How about down there? All the way to the ankle. And it had a skirt over it so that you couldn't see anything else. It had a skirt in addition to leggings. You say, how, do you, how can you prove that? Go get yourself a 1902 Sears catalog and look at the cutting edge of fashion in 1902. What in the world has happened in 100 years? During that 100 years, we get new Bible versions. They stop preaching. They start storytelling. They stop singing. They start playing instruments. Instead of congregational singing being a joyful thing to do, they get special music. And all of it is just a collapse in the worship of God and in our whole society. I'm not going to go a long distance on this one. I'm just going to impress upon you the point. Remember that it's a landmark. And if I can leave with this, I'll be content for the moment as your pastor and servant, the Lord's servant. By God's grace, when I believe that it is scriptural and profitable, there will be a, a modesty manual with pictures to help you girls understand because girls don't really connect upstairs when it comes to what you wear because you ain't got our eyes or our minds. So we're going to help you with some pictures. And what I've seen so far of this modesty handbook, it's really neat because it shows on one side an Amish type apparel and we're not going to that. You're not going to have to wear great big barnyard boots laced up to your knees and, and, and 18 layers. Then on the other side, it shows what the average worldling would wear to church. And right in the middle, there are feminine, modest women that are beautiful to look at. And they don't look like cheap sluts in what's, what goes down for clothing in many churches. I want to give you the Word of God on this, and this is what I hope that I, I'll, I'll leave with the women. Every Sunday, every day, every time you're in your bedroom, bathroom, or wherever you change your clothes, when you put on your clothes, I want you to think, how, how, much, how hard am I kicking against the ancient landmark that women covered their bodies? I want you to think about it. Am I upholding the landmark that women are supposed to be clothed in modest apparel or not? Or am I dressing like the world? Am I following the world a foot behind them and getting away from modesty, but I'm still not as bad as the world? I want you to be thinking all the time when you get dressed, your hair, your accessories, your makeup, and your clothes. Am I keeping a landmark? Am I stopping the slide of women taking off their clothes? 
Proverbs chapter 7, in its long parable about a young man being deceived by an adulteress, has this to say in verse 10, And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot, and subtle of heart. The Bible knows that there is clothing that suits itself for seducing men, and harlots wear that clothing. And and only cheap street sluts wear black, short micro-skirts with fishnet hose, high heels, and red sweaters. That is just a... That is nothing. That isn't the enemy. There's a whole lot of other adulteresses and harlots that work for a very different clientele, and they wear business attire and and the clothing that most churches allow in the pew. Because classier men require something a whole lot classier than what's downtown on a street corner. And they get it. They pay a little bit more for it too, but the profession is still the same. It's a harlot. We don't want to wear clothes that draw attention to our bodies, women. Girls, you want to wear clothes that conceal your body. You give your body to one man. You can wear whatever you want around the house with him. But don't come into this church with it and don't wear it outside your house. Look at Isaiah 3. Isaiah 3. This isn't a new problem. This is, this is an old problem. Girls, I understand. I know what fashion's telling you to wear. I know what gets the most attention. I know what feels the tightest and the best. I, I know those, I, I can understand those things. I haven't tried a tight skirt on in a while, but I understand it. That something that's tight feels more comfortable and secure than something loose, and you get used to pants, and you get used to this and that. But what counts is, am I holding the landmark of Christian modesty for women? Isaiah 3. Let me, let me race through a few verses here, beginning at verse 16. The Lord has seen this problem before. Moreover, the Lord saith, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, the walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their feet, the perfect gait of a runway model. A stretched forth neck. Go look at any picture of a model and what they do with their neck. Neck. They stretch it forth. They're arrogant. They're haughty. They're bold. And they're walking and mincing with their feet. They're swinging those hips and cocking those hips as they walk. And the Bible knows about that in Isaiah 3. Your Bible will never let you down if you'll learn the whole thing. Amen. And God hates these women. Amen. Look at that. I'm going to read that description again. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet. Walking and mincing is an exaggerated walk. Painted eyes. Eyes that look right at a guy without... We call them bedroom eyes or seductive eyes. You should never look at a man that way until you're looking at your husband that way. Straight on like you're reading a book. Straight on like you're meeting someone important and you're fearful. A shame-faced look, the Bible describes the woman ought to have in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And if you think that you have something in the way of accessories, makeup, or clothing that they didn't have in times past, or tools for curling the hair, you need to go home, grab yourself a good dictionary, and the dictionary you use at school isn't good enough, but go get an older dictionary that deals with these kind of English words, and you will find out that they were second to none in knowing how to beautify their bodies, face, and hair. I'm going to read through a whole bunch of things, and I'm not going to take the time to give you definitions on all of them. It's coming out in the uh, handbook, or the modesty handbook, whatever it'll, it'll be, just to help you women understand what's happening and to hold the line. Verse 7, Therefore the Lord, because of the way they walk and the way they talk and the way they look and the way they act, therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their calls and their round tires like the moon, the chains and the bracelets and the mufflers, the bonnets 
and the ornaments of the legs, and the headbands, and the tablets, and the earrings, the rings, and nose jewels, the changeable suits of apparel, and the mantles, and the wimples, and the crisping pins, the glasses, and the fine linen, and the hoods, and the veils. And it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, there shall be stink, and instead of a girdle, a rent, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth, and burning instead of beauty. There's the judgment of God upon such women. We do not want those kind of women. And fathers, it's, it's our jobs to keep our wives and our daughters not looking like those women. Or we're going to bring the judgment of, of God upon ourselves. Let's hold the line on this subject just like we are on the others. 1 Timothy chapter 2. When you girls or women, I'm speaking to your husbands, when you put on a pair of slacks to go out in public, it better be a loose pair of slacks. A pair of slacks shows off far more than a skirt shows off. Slacks show off the size, the proportion, the length of your thighs. It shows off your bottom. It shows off your crotch. It shows off your hips and your waist. A full skirt does not show off any of those things. There is a huge difference. And you need to be wise. When you're pulling on that pair of pants, you're revealing your thighs, your crotch, your rear, your hips, and you better be careful about what you're doing and it better be loose and it better be modest or grab yourself a full skirt and earn the praise of God and men. There are beautiful full skirts. There are classy full skirts. Learn to be classy instead of dressing like a barnyard hand. No, you're not going to get excluded for a modest pair of pants. I hope you listened well, though, to what I just said. We have got to hold the line. We cannot call ourselves virtuous because we're one step behind the world. We've got to measure ourselves by the Bible and by the natural sense that God's given us men. And you women cannot define it. We men can define it for you. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord in the New Testament. We've had the Old Testament. Here's the new. Verse 9 of 1 Timothy 2. In like manner also the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. Not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. A woman that professes to be a Christian, a woman that says she's a Christian, should look very different from the world. She should have a shamefaced look on. Not a bold, flirting, aggressive face, but a shamed face, reserved. It says a shamed face with a sober face, a sober look. That's why I said like you were reading a book. Sober. Straight in the eyes, not looking around, not tossing your head, not playing with your hair. Sober. Shamed faced. If you say you're a Christian... You'll adorn yourself with good works more than worrying about your makeup, your hair, or your clothing. Why don't you young ladies see who can outdo each other in good works? We would love the, we would love the competition. The Bible says to covet earnestly the best gifts. And you should covet to be covered up with good works and to have a great name. When your name is spoken, what do people think? A flirt. A forward girl. A bold talker. Wears too much makeup. Always trying to look like the world. Dumpy. What, what do you think when you hear it when your name is spoken? A godly girl. Virtuous. That's the kind I want for my son. What kind of thoughts are said about you? This is the word of the Lord. It's a landmark as much as any other because it's in the Bible. It's one of our fundamentals. Lord, help us to apply it properly. And if it takes it, if it takes it, I will try to, ex- I will exert pastoral authority and make a difference between the holy and the profane. Right now, I'm trying to preach gently. When you're dressing, you be thinking about the Word of God and holding that ancient landmark. One more passage, 1 Peter 3. I'm not any more upset about this point than I am the others. It's all part of our collapse. I hope that every, I hope that everyone here is wise enough to realize 
that the things that we are covering in the last 100 years, all of them together, all of them together are going down. It is amazing what we live in. God has chosen us to live in the perilous times of the last days and to hold the line. Why are we even having this series? Why are we convicted about it? Why do most of you care about it? God has chosen us, even if we're a small congregation, if we are just a very small part of the 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to the image of Baal, thank the Lord that we're in that number. They're all falling together. Once you leave the Word of God in this nation, look what happened. 1 Peter 3, verse 3. Who's adorning? Speaking of women and wives. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. Don't let that be the emphasis. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. God made the woman, God made the man. If you really want to be beautiful, you will have a meek and quiet spirit in the hidden woman of the heart because that's what God sees as beautiful and all noble and good men see that as beautiful. Noble men that are princes do not look at sluts. They're not interested. They don't want the cheap little thing. They don't want the public sewer. They want a real woman. They want a virtuous woman that will be loyal to them and be theirs. They want a virgin. All princes want virgins. Even Prince Charles demanded a virgin. The entire world knew when she proved her virginity by going to the doctor and having it declared. And you better look that way. This is the Word of the Lord. This does not mean you can't ever curl your hair. It doesn't mean you can't ever wear accessories. Because it says in verse 3, Who's adorning, let it not be the putting on of apparel. And because it says that, and we know that women should come to to church clothed, we know that he's dealing with the emphasis. Not the specific thing. It doesn't mean you can't wear clothes. It means they can't be the emphasis. The real adorning that a woman should care about is the hidden woman of her heart. That she's gracious. That she fears the Lord. That she obeys the authorities in her life. That she's faithful. That she loves Jesus Christ. That she trembles before His Word. That she hates the coarse conduct of the world. That she wants to be virtuous more than anything else. That's the hidden woman of the heart. You know what? Every bit of you is going to grow old and and get ugly. Every bit of you is going to deteriorate from this day forward, all of you that can understand me. But a meek and quiet spirit can't deteriorate. It's not corruptible. It can get better and better with age. A woman at 90 with a meek and quiet spirit and a gracious heart is just as beautiful as one at 20 because she's got what's beautiful in the sight of God and men. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word and keep us by His grace.